The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to Matthew chapter 17. Our scripture verses for study today are verses 22 through 27 in this chapter. And this really gives us just a great opportunity to talk about Christian citizenship. And this will be our subject for a little while, uh, for last week and then for a couple of other Sunday mornings. But at no time in in the history of our country do I think that Christians have been so... Uh, vocal about what government is doing. In the past 35 years, Christian people in this country have really become involved with the government. In the 1970s, uh, Pastor Jerry Falwell from Lynchburg, Virginia, formed a a new quasi-political organization and religious organization called the Moral Majority. And the intent of that was to get churches involved in shaping government policy and try to correct the values of our country, get things back on the right track. And that organization grew and Falwell's influence grew so that it was possible for him to actually, in the moral majority, to actually influence the politics of major political parties, especially the Republican Party. In 1984, I attended a conference in Washington, D.C. called Baptist Fundamentalism 84, in which Jerry Falwell had so much clout at that time that both President Reagan and George, uh, the Vice President George Bush spoke at that convention. And I remember... President Reagan's speech that just before it, the band struck up the normal introduction for the president, the the song Hail to the Chief, and coming out from behind the stage first was not President Reagan, but was Jerry Falwell to Hail to the Chief, beaming from ear to ear, and President Reagan followed him in. Now, since that time, uh, there has been much involvement of Christians in government. Uh, The influence is somewhat waning now because uh, Christians have become ethically compromised and biblically euthanized and morally liberalized so that Christianity looks very much like the secular government today. And we can debate this all that we want, whether Christians ought to be involved in the government whether we really ought to have a vocal, uh, have a voice in what government does. But regardless of which side of that debate that you come down on, you have to recognize the fact that we are citizens of two countries, that we are citizens of the United States, but also as believers in Jesus Christ, we are citizens of a heavenly country, and we have responsibilities to both. Now, in this passage, Jesus gives a a practical lesson about this dual citizenship. And we're really using these scriptures in Matthew to to launch into this wider study about our responsibilities both to our secular government and also to Christ's kingdom. Now, if you look in uh, Matthew 17, beginning in verse 22, let's stand one more time as we read God's word. Matthew 17, 22. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. 
And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take customer tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. And we ask you, Lord, you give us wisdom as we look into this subject. Help us to say what you'd really have us to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week in the message, we looked at an an overview of this passage. And I really do think that I, I need to start again today just very briefly describing the scene and the occasion for this teaching. This is in the third year of Jesus' ministry, and for quite some time he'd been taking the disciples through an intensive training process. Uh, His ministry was winding down, and it wouldn't be long before Jesus went to the cross. And so he was getting the disciples prepared for the final trip to Jerusalem that would lead to the death of the cross, and also, of course, of his resurrection. In the 16th chapter, in verse 21, we notice that there's a change in the narrative as Jesus begins to concentrate more on teaching his disciples and more about his death. And the disciples were upset about it because they really couldn't understand how the death of Christ would lead to a kingdom upon this earth. How could the death of Jesus be the beginning of a glorious kingdom? So when able to help them to understand better, he also taught them not just about the death, but also the resurrection. And he told them that the resurrection would would lead to his return to the earth when he would come in power and the glory of his father. And then he took three of his disciples upon the Mount of Transfiguration. And there in front of them, he was transfigured. His glory was seen. And that was uh, the, the proof that what he was saying was true and that he was really in control of everything that was happening. Then we notice in the 22nd and the 23rd verses of the 17th chapter that Jesus again speaks about his death and his resurrection. And we looked at that extensively last week as that set us up for the following verses where he teaches about citizenship. Now we looked at this and the topic of last week's message was God's revelation of the cross for citizenship. That the way that we become citizens of the heavenly country is because of Christ's death on the cross. That the cross was a a necessary plan of action. Because before God can bring his kingdom to the earth, all of his enemies must be defeated. And the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ are sin, death, and, and Satan and all of his followers. And the cross and the resurrection was God's plan for victory. And so when Jesus came out of the tomb, that sealed the doom of all of his enemies. Now in the next verses, we see the remarkable teaching ability of Jesus. That while he was on the way to the cross, he could make all the claims that he did of Messiahship, and yet at the same time, at the same time, teach his disciples about being good citizens of this world. 
And that was information that they would need because they would be tasked with preaching the gospel. And they must be uh, credible in their teaching and they're never to give any kind of undue offense to those who would have cause to, to make fun of or to denigrate the gospel of Christ. Now in verse 24, Peter was approached by a tax collector. He was collecting the temple tax, which was a yearly tax that the Jews uh, collected from their people. And it was for the upkeep of the temple. It was for the support of the priest. And when Peter was asked, does your master pay taxes? Jesus said, or Peter said, yes, because no doubt he'd seen Jesus pay the tax before. Now in verse 25, Peter came home. Jesus knew where he had been and what had taken place. And so he asked Peter, do the kings of the earth take tribute from their own children or do they take it from their subjects? And Peter replied, they take it from their subjects or as we have it here in our reading from strangers, meaning those that are not, mem- those that are not members of their own household. Now that was just really a, a brilliant method of teaching because in that statement, Jesus expressed once again that he was the Messiah. And that everything that was done in the temple was for him. It was all about him. That he's the king of the kingdom. And so therefore it's not necessary for him to pay a temple tax. But then he showed Peter that although it wasn't necessary, that it was best to do it. Lest they needlessly offend the Jews. And then they would have an excuse to say that Jesus was prejudiced against the temple or against Old Testament law. And so he instructed Peter to go to the Sea of Galilee and he would cast in a hook and he would take up a fish that that fish would grab the hook in its mouth and when he brought up that fish, there would be a coin in the fish's mouth and that would be a coin that he could use to pay the tax. And that showed once again that he was the omnipotent God and also at the same time, it taught Peter a lesson about citizenship. Now, we've used the story to branch out a little bit, and we want to go a little bit further today to talk about what God is doing in the world with human government. That God expects us as his children to relate to the world. Uh, We're waiting for the coming of Christ's kingdom upon the earth, but we have to live here, and we have people that we have to interact with, and the Bible teaches us how we are to do that, being good citizens both of heaven and of this world. So today we're going to look at the subject of God's recognition of human citizenship, or really, in essence, we're talking about God's ordaining of human government. That not only do we have a relationship with others as the children of God, but there is that physical relationship with those that are around us. That when God saves us, he doesn't take us out of the world, we know that, but we live here every day, we have to interact with people that are lost, And as you well know, people that do not know Christ as their Savior do not think the same way that we think. They don't have the same attitudes about the things of God that we have. And yet, we have to live with Him and interact with Him every day. And the disciples were no different than us. In fact, they lived at a time uh, under a government that was without all of the freedoms that we enjoy enjoy in, in this country. Now, what I'd like you to do is turn, if you would please, to Romans chapter 13. And this is where we find the Apostle Paul expanding on Jesus' thoughts respecting the government. 
And while you're turning there and looking for that, let me just mention to you that, that Jesus used the words custom and tribute in Matthew 7, 17.25, and that was an indication that not only was he concerned about the religious taxes and paying those and thought that the disciples should, but he was also speaking about human government. He was talking about taxes that were collected by the Roman government, and Jesus taught that it was right to pay those taxes and to honor the government. And so at no time in the scriptures anywhere do we find the disciples revolting against government. They had to live with it because not only is God the author of heaven's kingdom and heaven's government, but he is also the author of the governments of this world. He gave us human government. So it shouldn't seem unusual at all that we come to other places in the New Testament and find that the disciples are dealing with the same issues that Jesus talked about. The Bible is a book that is well-rounded. It teaches us all about our Christian lives, and this is another of the subjects that the Bible touches on. Now, notice what Paul says in Romans 13, and this is really just a comprehensive passage on respecting government and also paying taxes. Verse number 1 says, "...let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, powers that be are ordained of God." Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid." For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now those verses tell us that God recognizes human government because God is the one who gave it to us. Paul says that we must be subject to the higher powers because all of these powers have been ordained by God. And I know that's very difficult for Those who are more militant type of Christians, it's hard to get a handle on this because for the most part, we do love our government, but we're not really crazy at times about those who run it. And so we disagree many times with the leaders of our country, but it does not give us the right to disobey the laws of our country. Now, I know as Americans that we're we're conditioned to believe that the authority of government lies with the consent of the governed, and it is with the will of the majority or in some social compact that's been entered into with man, by man. And that's a really nice thought. And we do find it expressed in the Declaration of Independence, and we find it in the Constitution of our United States. But the Bible teaches that the real authority for government does not lie in us. It doesn't rest in us, but the real authority of government is given by God. That God is even the one who's behind our human government. Now, in our church statement of faith, in in the section that's titled, Of Civil Government, our church holds and affirms this statement. We believe that civil government is of divine appointment, 
for the interest and good order of human society. And that magistrates are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored and obeyed, except only in those things opposed to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of conscience and the prince of the kings of the earth. That first phrase of the article begins, we believe that civil government is of divine appointment. And in Romans chapter 13 that we just read, the Apostle Paul makes a defense of that statement. He says at the end of the verse, the powers that be are ordained of God. And so very clearly we see that it is God's intention for man to be be ruled. And although God is the supreme ruler of the universe, he has delegated authority for relationships between men to be governed not only by his celestial government, but God says we must obey the human government as well. And the fact that civil government is not in conflict with God, it is not a usurpation of of God's authority, we find the purpose for civil government stated right here in Romans chapter 13. He says in verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now, as you read that statement, you have to think that that is a very, very strange thing for Paul to say. In light of the atrocities of the Roman government, weren't they actually a terror to good works? Didn't the Roman government try to kill Christians and did kill Christians? And wasn't the Roman government always involved in trying to stop the spread of the gospel? So what does Paul mean that government is not a terror to good works. Well, there he's not speaking about the works of the gospel. He's speaking about works in general. He's speaking about the ability for the government to do things like hold crime in check and to rightfully punish those that commit crimes against society. And so when he speaks of doing good, he's talking in a more general sense that really we need to be good members of society. And if we are good members of society, then we'll be commended and the government won't bother us. But on the other hand, if we break the laws of our country, then we need to watch out. Because government has been given by God to take care of lawbreakers. Now I want to point out to you today three ways that the civil government is useful to man. Now, this, this actually sets us up for next week, and we're going to come back to this and speak more specifically of the role of Christians and the church in government. And so we, what we have going here is really just a little mini-series about the Christian in government. And it's very important because there are so many churches that are heavily involved in politics. So what good is human government? Why is God so wise to give us government? Well, first of all, our government promotes the welfare of the people. Now, this is just really an amazing thing as you study church history and you see the attitude that Christianity had towards church and government. Our founding fathers were were very wise, that they put a clause in the Constitution that separates church from the government. And we would think, well, that's really not so wise, is it? I mean, who better to give us a righteous government? Who better to establish principles of righteousness than to have people who love God, to have the church come and be the ones that actually rules 
Who, who better could, could promote the welfare of the people than the church? And that's the fallacy of not understanding the kingdom of God. That it is not the church's responsibility to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. Jesus Christ will do that. He'll establish the kingdom on the earth. And when he comes back, he comes with his holy angels. He'll bring with him the ransomed and the redeemed and the immortal ones and a sinless body of believers that will be able to rule the world. Now, even though Christ is the supreme ruler of the universe, he's not given authority as his church, to his church, to interfere in the government. The church and the state are to remain separate until the time that Christ comes to rule in a perfect government in the millennial kingdom. And that's what he'll do. He'll come, he'll rule in a theocracy over this world. In the millennial kingdom, he'll be here and rule with a rod of iron. All people will bow down to him. All will be subject to his laws. The only laws that will ever be permitted are those that are in agreement with God's kingdom and perfect agreement, and all the laws will be righteous laws. But in the meantime... There is to be no ecclesiastical authority mixed with civil authority. We cannot force people to live by religious laws, and we shouldn't try. And our founding fathers were, were wise in formulating a constitution that forbids the union of church and state. And I firmly believe that God was in control of that, that God directed them. Because God also knows that the end of church-state actions are always religious persecution. Christ's church is of divine origin, and that's why we have to let him rule in the church. Do you understand that's why that we say Christ is the head of the church? He founded the church. It's, it's his law. It's, it's his church that, that he's established and... We don't make any laws for the church. And this is one of the reasons that we can't mix the church with the state because when you do, you replace the ruling authority with man's authority and men are sinners and the only result that you're going to get from it is sin. So the church is never going to be able to perfect the government. When the Pope crowned Charlemagne as the king and then wed him to the civil government, then the Roman Catholic Church and, and the civil government becomes the Holy Roman Empire, what was the result? Persecution. Now you have a secular government replaced by the persecution of a religious government. And the only thing that ever changed in that was that a corrupt church merged with a corrupt government, and what would you expect? People become corrupt. There's no righteousness in it. And so they force people into deeper corruption, and it just became a, a, a deeper sin for those who lust for power. And they persecuted people who disagreed with them. So how does our belief in God coincide with civil government? Well, only this way. That every believer should live as a citizen of this country. That through his actions, he does his very best to establish the conditions that best represent Christ-like, a Christ-like community. But in no case is a state action to be taken to make that a reality. And that's why that I, as the pastor of Berean Baptist Church, will not join with anything, any movement, evangelical or fundamental, that seeks to influence legislation in order to bring about some sort of Christian agenda for our government. That's not the business of the church. And if it were, then Paul would have been signing people up to picket against Caesar and against the Senate 
And Paul would have, would have uh, organized some kind of a temperance society against the drunkenness of the, of the uh, Roman government and their leaders and organized a rally against temple prostitutes. But that's not what we find Paul doing because that's not the business of the church. It's not our business to bring heaven on earth. There's only one way that we can help this world and make more citizens of the right kind and that is we win people to Jesus Christ. That's the way that we do it. The more citizens of heaven that inhabit the earth, the better things are going to be. This is why we want to give the gospel to people, not only to save their souls, but for the good of everyone. Because when people know Christ, then the result is the right kind of a government. This is why we have people out yesterday spreading news about the church and telling people about the gospel of Christ. Because the way to change this American society is for people to know about Christ and to live for Christ, to follow him. So the best way that we promote the welfare of all people in the absence of heaven's king, who is coming back sometime, is to separate the church from civil government and to do what the Bible requires of winning people to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be subject to the higher powers, as Paul says here. And when government establishes the protection of rights and restrains people from doing harm to the property and persons of others, it is carrying out the will of God. Now, civil civil government is good for us because it prescribes many different customs and institutions that are good for the community as as a whole. And when civil government is carried out responsibly, that does promote the welfare of man. And the result of that is God's word is honored. And when people see the usefulness of a divine institution that with people that are living according to the laws of God because they know Christ is Savior, then the wisdom of God is promoted. Now that's one reason why you never want to align yourself against the government. And I'll say more about those kinds of reasons later. But for now, if you cause people to think that whatever cause that you have promotes anarchy, that it is against or endangers the welfare of all people in our country, then what opinion do you think they're going to have of your God? You won't have any opportunity to win people like that to Christ. If they think you're an anarchist, you can't win them with the gospel. Now, secondly, what does the government do? Well, it also promotes order in society. Imagine for a minute that there was no such thing as government. What if we had no central authority? Well, then the result would be that each man is a law to himself. Now, if that person, each person was a conscientious person, which is by no means a guarantee because the Bible tells us what the human heart is really like, but if we were all conscientious people then maybe things would turn out good for everybody. We'd be able to get along with each other. But what if people are evil? What do they do? Well, they ignore the rights of others. A dishonest man has no regard for the property of others. A vengeful-type person damages the property and person of others. And so a life without government would mean that the toughest and the strongest end up determining what's right and wrong. Darwin would call that survival of the fittest, but that's not survival of the fittest. That is the survival of the cruelest and the meanest people. And so a world without government becomes a perpetual source of conflict for people. 
And do you realize this? I mean, this is another amazing thing when you look at it, how that even without the Bible, that men or people have written on their hearts the need for human government. That's part of the moral code that God put within us. So it doesn't matter where you go on the face of this earth, no matter what the civilization is like, people live in some sort, under some sort of a government, something that that helps them to structure their lives. We have a, a great example in the Old Testament of what happened when there was no real governing authority. This is in the book of Judges, and it's when Israel got away from the government that God had given them. God showed Israel how they were to live and to worship, but they thought they had a better idea. The period of Moses and Joshua, that was over with, and so they had no strong leader in Israel to enforce a code of justice. So Judges 17.6 records, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Matthew Henry comments ably on that verse, and he says, Every man did that which was right in his own eyes, and then they soon did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. When they were without a king to keep good order among them, God's house was forsaken, his priests were neglected, and all went to ruin among them. See what mercy government is, and what reason there is that not only prayers and intercessions, but giving of thanks should be made for kings and all in authority. Nothing contributes more under God to the support of religion in the world than the due administration of those two great ordinances, magistracy and ministry. Now, government is not our enemy. God was wise to give us government. It promotes order. It gives us laws to live by. It gives us a way to get along with each other. Every person answers to the law in the same way. And so the evil of hearts can't be played out by people doing things that are right in their own eyes. And then thirdly, God was wise to give us government because it promotes the common good. Well, that sums up the foregoing reasons. Without an organized government, there's no way that evildoers could be restrained. Society would be divided among factions. The inevitable result of that is feuds where people seek to protect themselves or they try to profit at the expense of others. So only the strong and the violent survive. Without government, we have no projects that can be constructed for the common good. How would you build a bridge that benefits everyone? How do you construct a highway? How do you build a village wall to protect people against an invader? How do you get rid of someone who's a nuisance to society? What do you do about controlling disease and sicknesses among the people? There is no common good without common government. And the wisdom of God allows for that good. And so God has done this. He's created us for community life. He, he's, he's created us to dwell together. It's not normal to dwell alone. And we naturally have these relationships with other people. And so it begins with our family and it branches out to other types of societal organizations. So whenever people bind together in civil governments, they protect individual rights and they're enforcing God's divine law. So God protects the welfare 
of the people through this divine law, the institution of human government. And so in general, as I said a moment ago, when, when government is doing what's right and protecting people and carrying out the laws that they should in the right way, they are actually doing the will of God. And nobody has ever done anything that promotes the good of people unless it has as its basis the righteousness of God. All of that's based upon God's divine laws. So, do you see what we need? Where people prosper, God's always in control. But we need to learn an important lesson in this as well. That our founding fathers were wise when they separated church and state. But they never intended to separate God from the state. Separation of church and state is to keep the government from combining to the church, with the church to enforce ecclesiastical laws of one particular kind of church. And that has been tried through the centuries. It's always been a colossal failure. But our founding fathers never intended that two people would tell 50 million Christians what they can do. Our founding fathers, I think, would roll over in their graves to find out that the Supreme Court outlawed prayer in our schools. I mean, we see the result of that. We're not supposed to divorce ourselves from God. Government is ordained by God, but that doesn't mean that God should be left out of government. And so America suffers morally for all of this. And so we understand why there were people like Jerry Falwell who thought that the right thing to do was to just march into the halls of government, get an organization together, go into government, and just fix things. But is that what Paul did? Did did he mount an uprising when the Roman government was hostile to Christianity? And I know this is hard for us to understand when, when we see what our government does, but if you look at what God did with the Roman government, you can see that God ordained it actually for the good of people. In, the, in general, the Roman Empire kept peace among the people that it conquered and made it easier for the gospel to spread in the first century. It was, it was the Roman government that built the Via Ignatia. The Ignatian Way, which was in their time uh, an interstate highway that stretched 700 miles to the provinces of Rome that allowed the gospel to be taken freely to different areas. It was the Roman government that established shipping lanes and made safety and traveling and set up the trade routes and that facilitated the spread of the gospel. The world was united by a common language that was promoted by the Romans. And so although they were personally opposed to the gospel, God used it all to work within his plan to spread the gospel. And the next time that you complain about the government's growing hostility towards Christianity, just remember this, God is in control. The freedoms that we have make it easier for us to preach the gospel of Christ, to give it to the world that needs it. And so the next time that you want to complain about something, complain about ourselves. Complain about what we've done because God gave us human government to make it actually possible that we could win more people to Christ. When you want to complain, complain that we've squandered so many years of freedom that we've had to preach the gospel and we haven't done it. If you want to complain, complain against us because we haven't won people to the Lord like we should have won them. Complain against us because we could have changed government, we could have made things better if we did win people to Jesus Christ. 
We could have made things differently if we had one people who would vote righteously and change the laws of this government. When you want to complain, complain against American Christians that decided they would vote their pocketbooks instead of their morality, or the morality of God, maybe I should say. Complain that Christians think nothing of voting for a party that made it their platform to spread murder and to promote the abominable lifestyle of homosexuality. There is no nation in the history of the world that's ever survived homosexuality. And you know why? Because God doesn't let them survive. A nation can reach the point when God says no more. And if you want to read more about that or know more about it, read Romans chapter 1. And the Bible says that God gives them over to a reprobate mind and God judges the nation and they crumble from within. So God gave us government for our good. We can't fault God for what's happened to us. The fault is ours. God set us up for success. God gave us a country where we could preach the gospel freely and spread it as far as we want to spread it. And we complain about what's going on. We complain about how hard it is for us and how, how, how the laws are always against Christians. Don't blame anybody but us. We have the ability to do something about it and we haven't done it. You see, Christians, and this is the way it's always been throughout history, Christians can flourish under any kind of government. You just look at what's happened in, what happened in the communist countries. There's a thriving, had been a thriving underground church with communism in control. See, God can get the glory no matter what the government is if his people are still following what God wants them to do. The problem is we're just not too keen on giving God the glory. Now, before I close this today, I want to back up to verses 22 and 23 in Matthew 17. And I don't want anybody that missed last week's message not to hear a very clear presentation of the gospel of Christ. In those two verses, Jesus said that he would die and then he would rise from the dead. And that's the way that you as a sinner can be reconciled to God. See, the Bible teaches that we're all sinners. And we often say that because the Bible does say it. Romans chapter 3 says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But sometimes we just rest in that, that all have come short of the glory of God. And we're just a part of the all, and it really doesn't mean that much. So let's just say it the way the Bible intends for you to get it, and that is that you have come short of the glory of God. That you have sinned against God. That you are guilty and you are under the wrath of God. And the only way that you can be delivered from the wrath of God is through this sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross of Calvary. That's the only way that any person ever becomes right with God. This is what righteousness is, believing in Jesus Christ and having his righteousness given to you so you do not have to suffer the wrath of God. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's when you become a citizen of heaven. And if you want to know about that, if you want to know how to possess dual citizenship, how not only to be a citizen of this world and this country, but also to be a citizen of heaven, stick around. We'll be happy to tell you more about it. In just a few minutes, we'll end this service. You can come here if you'd like, and we can talk here. There are people in the back that you can talk to. We don't want anybody to go away without knowing who Jesus Christ is and what he did for lost sinners on the cross of Calvary.
We want you to have that information. We are a church that believes in preaching the gospel of Christ and believes in delivering people through God's gospel from the awful torments of hell. And that is as real as real can be. Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in all of the scriptures. It's real. And he died to deliver people from it. And I hope that you know him. Now you see, citizenship in in this world is going to end. It's temporary. Citizenship in the world is not going to help you with anything. The only thing that will is citizenship in heaven. And you can begin it today, and it's not temporary. It lasts for all of eternity. Trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you what we learn from your word. Lord, I just pray that you would impress upon our minds the, the real importance of knowing Christ as Savior, to be the kind of people that we ought to be as Christians, that we would follow your word, the laws that you have given us, and as we do that, that we would make a better society, make a better world that's around us by converting people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I know that the government does so many things that we don't approve of, so many laws that are made that are silly and useless and nonsense to us. But for the cause of the gospel, we have to put up with a lot of those things in order that we might win people to you. Lord, we know you are the supreme ruler, and we follow only you ultimately. And we never disobey your laws, and we never obey man's laws when they come in conflict with your laws. But until such time, Lord, help us to follow you, to obey our government at the same time to follow what you've told us to do. Speak to people's hearts today, Lord. Make us better servants of yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.